Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Telekinesis, the laziest superpower of them all. Now, let's dim the lights with the remote control and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Seduce and Destroy. Respect the cock and Master Bush and Frank T.J. Mackey's best-selling book, Seduce and Destroy. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a film podcast for film lovers. And even better, if you like are creative, I know I struggle with a little thing. So I've been talking to someone recently, and they were talking about how they have you know, a hard problem calling themselves an artist, even though they have like an actual degree in art. And I identify with that. Like I'm a filmmaker and for years I struggled uh, with imposter syndrome of calling myself a, you know, a filmmaker or a director or really anything that felt like I belonged. Like I almost tried to exclude myself in a lot of ways. And it never really, I mean, I'm just in one week from today, I will have been a full-time filmmaker for nine years. And for me, I still get nervous uh, before shoots, even on shoots where the stakes are pretty low. I shot a boot information video, like kind of a DIY video last week. And this is as low stress as it's going to get in our field. Like the client provided the talent, provided the voiceover and the location and the, and all the supplies. Like I literally just got to show up and, you know, create and, I was still stressing out going in. I was like, is this going to be crap? Am I going <laughs> to, you know, embarrass myself and the client? They're going to have to fire me. And am I doing it right? You know, and all these thoughts just kind of flood through my head on every shoot. And I don't know if it's something that I can really stop. It's just the way I operate. And for me, I, I try to use that fear as a way to propel myself forward into making something good and shot it turned it around and clients very happy and blah, blah, blah. But it just, for me, it never really goes away. Like I'm always, you know, on whatever tenor hooks and just anticipating how can I do this better? How can I be, you know, confident that the client is getting what they want while also me feeling like I'm getting what I want. I feel like it's so important for me to walk on a set and want to create something that I love and something that I'm, I'm happy with. Yeah, it for me it just kind of always is right there bubbling under the surface, under the surface. And so I'm curious, like for you, do you still I don't know how your process works, whether you're making music or you're producing. How does that look for you? Do you deal with imposter syndrome or you just squash it and say, I'm just here to do a thing, I'm gonna do my thing? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, every literally every second of every day. <laughs> I mean, I have to remind myself that that well. I guess I don't call myself an artist either. So I guess that's a good point. Obviously, you know, an established musician like like Beyonce, I would call her an artist, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a that might be like a in music at least, it might be like a newer thing to call musicians artists. I don't know. I just I don't remember growing up ever hearing that term in related to music, right? Or a musician, like an artist. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe, but it feels like a newer thing the last like 15, 20 years. Anyway, yeah, I've never really called myself an artist, just say musician. And I can call myself a musician for sure. But artist, yeah, it feels, I don't know. That's a good point because it feels like an artist, you have to be, I don't know, like there's prerequisites for to call yourself that for some reason. I don't know, but I, I do 
struggle with imposter syndrome every single day. I mean, and I've had, I wouldn't say success, but I mean, I've had like wins in my career, mm-hmm. I would say yep. career. I'm even putting that in air quotes. I've had, you know, good things that have happened even, you know, this past year. So to still have that, I think is normal. You know, I, I think that even established artists that, you know, have like a big record, they might have imposter syndrome and, and think, think, oh, you know, what if that was a one-time thing? And, and, and I think it's really easy if you have like a bolt of lightning idea, right. And you finish it and it comes to fruition and it's just as good, just as good as you pictured it would be in your head. Right. To say, I, I am the kind of person where I will go back and analyze and think, oh, that wouldn't have happened if this and that and that and that, and I dilute my own artistry or my own creativity in creating that. I, I think, you know, that's part of being your own worst critic. And I'm sure this person that you're talking about, who I probably think I know who you're talking about, but I'm sure that this person probably feels the same way in, in that, you know, I try to remind myself that that kind of stuff, that's life, right? Life is inspiration and you got to kind of take it where it comes. And the difference is the people who actually do it. So one of my my best friends in the world, a mentor in music, he told me he brought his son to this, this, uh, it's a quick story, brought his son to this museum in like Europe or something when he was little. And on the wall was a, a painting of, I think it was like, oh, it was a bunch of paintings of just black, right? And there were shapes and stuff in the black. So different shades of black, but it was all the whole, all the canvases were just black, right? And but they were slightly different, obviously. And he, he said, his son said, said, dad, what is, what is this? I could have done this. I can do this, you know, and I'm eight or where, however old he was. And my friend said, yeah, but you didn't. And that's the difference, right? The difference is, it's like, I could be inspired by something that's, and you call it inspired. I could be, something could happen to me or happen around me that could make me want to make something. And because I make that thing, diluting it in my head mean, means that, oh, you know, I wouldn't have been this creative had this thing not happened. Well, it's not just about creativity in real world. In real life, it's about creating when you're not even feeling like creating, right? Like there's sometimes I come in here and I have nothing and I don't want to be in here, you know? And for the most part, if I don't want to be in here, I just am not. I just make that decision. But sometimes I push through it when I feel like I need to and something comes of it. And I think that that's the difference. It's like, you, you can't just, you're an artist because you create, not because of any other of any other thing. And so I, I get the whole feeling of, you know, you're an imposter. There are other people that are more creative, other people that are more productive, but I guarantee you all of those people that you think are more creative and more productive feel the same way about other people. And those people feel the same way about other people. And it's a snowball thing. So yes, I, I feel that way. That's awesome. I feel that way right now. <laughs> and and I, we started this by me saying, hey, I got this cool track that I'm working on. It's I'm like really excited about it. And it's just this little idea. But I still feel like, you know, if, if I hadn't found this sound or this loop, then that would never have happened. Well, yeah, but that, you know, a thousand other people could use that loop, but not turn it into what I turned it into. So yeah, I, I feel that way too, man. Well said. Nice. Okay, so what are we going to cover today, man? So yes, today we are reviewing Magnolia. 
Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. So if you haven't watched that movie, pause this episode. It is streaming, I believe, on HBO Max. So you can go catch it there because there's going to be spoilers all over the place for this movie in particular. Absolutely. We're going to talk about a bunch of things. It's a three-hour marathon here. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot going on. But we'll touch on some of the cinematography, long takes, the transitions, the the way they framed using anamorphic lenses. We'll touch on ensemble writing, the music. I have a few magnolia flower facts and other such stuff and things and stuff. So a synopsis of the film, an epic mosaic of interrelated characters in search of love, forgiveness, and meaning in the San Fernando Valley, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, cinematography by Robert Elswit, starring Tom Cruise as Frank T.J. Mackey, Melora Walters as Claudia Gator, Philip Baker Hall as Jimmy Gator, Melinda Dillon as Rose Gator, Jeremy Blackman as Stanley Spector, William H. Macy as Wizkid Donnie Smith, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Phil Parma, Jason Roberts as Earl Partridge, Julianne Moore as Linda Partridge, and John C. Riley as Officer Jim Curring. Sidney Barringer jumps from the ninth floor rooftop. His parents argue three stories below. Her accidental shotgun blast hits Sidney in the stomach as he passes the arguing sixth floor window. He is killed instantly, but continues to fall only to find, five stories below, a safety net installed three days prior for a set of window washers that would have broken his fall and saved his life, if not for the hole in his stomach. So Faye Barringer was charged with the murder of her son, and Sidney Barringer noted as an accomplice in his own death. And it is in the humble opinion of this narrator that this is not just something that happened. This cannot be one of those things. This, please cannot be that. And for what I would like to say, I can't. This was not just a matter of chance. (laughs) These strange things happen all the time. So I assume this was your first time watching this one. No. Have you seen Magnolia before? Yeah, a couple times. PTA just has such a weird, deep library that I assume most people don't watch it <laughs> like most of it. So that's pretty cool. Um, I'm curious then, what did you remember from it before watching it versus what did you realize like, oh, while watching it this time? Well, I, I mean, I remember the acting uh, phenomenal across the board. I remember the frogs at the end. I remember TJ Mackey, but I didn't remember, you know, like, a lot of the storyline and how they all intertwined and didn't remember that it was three hours long. That's for sure. I started it and I was like, Oh my God. Wow. But it, it goes by, it goes by really fast. I think because there's so many stories that you bounce back and forth between that it's, it doesn't feel that long. And it feels like right when you might get tired of something, it feels like they switch, you know, and they go, Oh yeah, we're back to, to uh, the cop now. Okay, cool, cool. Awesome. And there's something to love about um, like all the characters, all of them. So every time you go to a new story, you're, you're kind of happy that you're with this, this character again. I, I think things that I forgot were, what's his name? Philip Baker uh, as the game show host. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What he did to Rose. I, I forgot about that. Yeah. You know, I forgot about how the frogs affect everybody at the end, right? There were things that I caught 
that I didn't catch before. There are there was a, a Genesis quote that comes on in the the street on the signs. I think when when it's like super quiet, there's nobody on the street. There's one moment where the Genesis twelve six or something. Exodus, yeah. Exodus, thank yeah. you. This Bible verse comes on there, and I looked it up during the movie, and was like, oh okay, it's referring to the the frog plague. I was like, okay, okay, cool, cool. And I think that a couple other there were a couple other Easter eggs in there that you'll probably bring up or talk about that I don't I don't know. But that I noticed, and I looked it up because I was like, is this referencing frogs? And it did. So cool. This is a movie that makes me fall in love with movies and the power of what film can do because it does so much without doing a whole lot. Like it's weird and quirky in some ways. It's very loving and slow and methodical in others. It's it's hit you over the face in in others. It's like takes its time. It develops exactly on pace that it should. It, you know, normally we sit here and we're like, man, that movie was two and a half hours. Oh my gosh, it could have been an hour and shorter and and been just fine. I could have watched another two hours of this movie. And I think it is a lot to do with one, the directing, two, the cinematography, and 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 the acting and and the writing. I mean, like everything, just everything is so awesome. I think the cinematography is something specifically for me that I noticed and loved. Because they did a lot of shots that were obviously bumpy mm. and not stable on purpose. Like I, the one that I'm just the coming thinking light. about right now. The what? The traffic light. Yeah, the traffic light when they go across the the in, intersection mm-hmm. to what's her name to um, Rose uh, Claudia. No, that's Rose. Yeah, Rose the wife. Oh, that's what I mean. Yeah. Okay, so what Jimmy did to Claudia? Mm-hmm. That's what I didn't remember. So yeah, when they go across the street to Rose, and it's all shaky, and I'm just like, what is happening? You know, I think so many movies would have would have not done that, no. and it, that would have been fine. Mm-hmm. Would have been fine if it was stable. Yeah. I, you know, would have been fine, but I wouldn't remember it. Maybe. Yeah. And other shots like where it would be going down the street and it would turn around, and Donnie Donnie's in the car right there, and he's like, "What am I doing?" And he turns around, stuff like that. It it was just brilliant, and and I think that that, I mean, it might have been a cinematographer call there, but I I feel like that's directing. Like sometimes you can just feel that felt like a director call mm-hmm. right there. If not in the moment, at least in the editing room, right? Maybe they did one stable just in case, but he chose that. But if nothing else out of, out of all of that, that I'm saying the acting is just an absolute clinic from everyone, everyone cast all, from Tom Cruise, all the way to John C. Riley, who murders <laughs> that role. He is flawless and you look at that guy like it's so great because you look you've got tom cruise who's just like this you know over the top masculine beautiful man right who's amazing actor like we've said it on this podcast before tom cruise is absolutely phenomenal as an actor i don't care what you think about him personally the guy just brings it and he and he brings it 100 all the time learning to fly a jet for top gun like you know, flying a helicopter for Mission Impossible, like all of these, like he brings it a hundred percent, which is why he's perfect for, for the TJ Mackey role. So, cause he's just bringing it 150%. That's just what he is, but not just him from him all the way down. So putting John C. Riley next to him, who's like just this random guy 
he seems like a random guy that would be your neighbor, you know, next door. Like, oh yeah, John next door, right? He doesn't seem like a, an A top grade A list actor, right? But he is phenomenal. He's just perfect for that role. So whoever cast this film just killed it in that regard too. I mean, everyone just is wonderful, wonderful. But I don't think that all of those performances would have been what they were had it not been for for PTA in this. I feel like he had a lot to choose from and he picked the right takes on everything. The best scene for me or the best acting scene for me, I mean it's hard to it's hard to pick, but I want to try just because that's the thing that stands out to me is the acting. Man, it's it's really hard to pick. I think if I have to only pick one, it will be Tom Cruise when he gets to his dad's bedside. And ha basically he goes from this calm or, you know, like seemingly calm character and then just completely loses it. But it's over kind of a long period of time. And that kind of thing is really hard to do as an actor. It's really easy to explode, right? Just to get instantly mad and for it to be believable. But to slowly grow that anger and slowly let it out methodically over, I mean, I know they cut away, right? And they went to a couple of different scenes, you know, and then would come back to him. But I, I'll bet that take was a oneer, and I'll bet it was, you know, I don't know, a good three minutes long of him slowly getting angry. That is so, so hard to do. And it was so one, like wonderful to watch this guy who obviously didn't care about anything, anything or anyone other than himself completely lose it. And then kudos to <laughs> kudos to Paul PTA for the writing to then beg him not to leave, you know, and after just saying like, like F you, I hope you die. Don't leave. It was just really, really beautiful. I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll let you chime in and then we can put on some of your notes, but no. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt kind of the same way. Like I've only seen this once before and the only thing I could remember were the frogs, one frog deflecting a, a, a bullet, you know, hitting the gun. And I forgot that. And, yeah. yeah. And Tom Cruise as some kind of sex God guru. And that was literally it. Like I kept trying to remember what this movie was really about. And the frogs just have such an impact that I couldn't think past those guys. And I couldn't remember, was I happy or was I frustrated with the frogs? Until and then I, you know, sit down and start watching this thing. And then all these stories start coming to life and they all feel familiar, but they also feel brand new. And it was really just amazing. Whenever I think of the movies I have PTAs that I love, it usually starts with Punch Drunk Love. And I mean, Boogie Nights is fine. I know everybody loves Boogie Nights and there will be blood is fine to me, like the performances in there. But I usually kind of start and stop with Punch Drunk Love because, you know, it's such an odd film. Adam Sandler is doing something incredible in there. And now after having watched Magnolia, I'm like, I think this is probably I I don't want to suffer from like recency bias. But <laughs> I it, I was like, this is an incredible movie. And you were right, man. Like if it had been an extra two hours, I would have sat right there and, you know, chewed through that, too. Because there is so much going on and it couldn't have been shorter. I, I was thinking about that, watching it for, I watched it twice before this episode. One time just to sit and enjoy and then another time to take notes. And towards the end of that second time through, I was like, is there anything I would want to edit or remove? 
because you would have to cut a storyline in order to really make this thing shrink. You'd have to kill someone's storyline. And they're all just too interwoven because you could look at someone like Stanley Spectre, the kid who was, you know, on the Jimmy Gator show, killing everybody on that show. Like Stanley just knew everything. And I was like, you, you can't really remove him because he's a reflection of Donnie. And he's also kind of hinting at something bigger with Jimmy, especially once you get to the end and you realize Jimmy probably was a child molester. And you think about him running a show with kids on it. And you're like, how many kids did he hurt? You know, that was on the show. Was that like an avenue for him to, to hurt people? These are fleeting thoughts that they don't even address on, on in the film. It's just stuff that you can walk away with as you're thinking about it. And, and, and if you kept him and you wanted to maybe, you know, cut quiz, quiz kid, Donnie Smith, like you can't really cut him either. Cause he's kind of a foretelling of Stanley's future and even Stanley's name, you know, specter is kind of a, a reflection of that, like a specter, a ghost. And he's kind of a haunting of both Jimmy and, and Donnie. And those two characters are intertwined, even though they've never met and never meet through the film. Like everyone is just playing a, a very specific part and overlapping in interesting ways. Yeah. This, and God, just to piggyback on what you said, John C. Riley is incredible. Like he never lets up his, and it's so interesting just to kind of contrast him with Tom Cruise because yeah, Tom Cruise is this, uh, and he's, he's bringing it, he's over the top, his character's over the top and he's just bringing it and he's, yeah, beautiful. And you contrast that with John C. Riley, who's got these larger than life features. He's got this curly hair and these strong facial features and, and yet he's understated, but because of all his characteristics, he can be understated and still like have a punch on you. Like he can make you laugh without trying to make you laugh. And he can make you sigh, you know, with just his gentility whenever he's talking to Claudia and you can see him on, on the one hand trying to be serious, but also not trying to be stern in a way that's going to put her off. Like he's telling her, Hey, just one last thing, you know, I don't, I don't like to talk shop over coffee. So I just want to get, you know, officer Jim out of the way. And then it can just be us, you know, having a conversation. You got to turn down your music. You know, you're going to, you're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> you're going to damage your hearing. <laughs> you're going to damage your hearing. And you know, the, there's people around you, you know, you got to think about them too. And he's trying to like give her the what for without actually dressing her down. Like it's, it's a uh -huh. really interesting dynamic. And even whenever he's talking to the kid, he's like, okay, we'll continue. But, you know, without the lip, <laughs> you know, he's just yeah. he's just this really fascinating character because it's all coming from a place of even whenever he's doing like pure comedy, it's always come up coming from a place of just pure sincerity. You never feel him trying to be anything. He's always just completely in the moment playing the person opposite him. You know what's in the script. And he's just 100% authentic. The scene where him and Claudia are sitting and having dinner and he's trying to tell her that, you know, whoever you are, it's okay. It's fine. Like I'm, I'm okay with who you are. And you can see him really, even though they're rarely in the same frame, you can see him really just trying to connect and let her know, like, it's okay. It's okay. You know, and you can feel him fighting for her. And that's, Man, that's beautiful. It's hard to do as an actor, especially if they're not there with you in the same frame. Like she's obviously there across the table from him and she's given him a lot to work with, but he is just completely fighting for her through the frame, through the lack of her in the frame. And it's 
it's astounding. But everyone here, like Julianne Moore is timeless. Oh my gosh. And you completely buy into her, you know, transformation or just the, uh, the guilt as it kind of rolls over her. William H. Macy never ceases to astound me. Cutting from him as a kid to him as an adult is one of the greatest transformation, like makeup jobs ever. So good. <laughs> because so you believe good. it. You're like, yeah, that is the quiz kid, Donnie Smith. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was just completely uh, caught up in this film. And I'll roll through some notes here. And I, I know we'll, we'll hit on uh, several moments, especially at the end. But with the, the cinematography, just so many long takes, both, you know, oneers like these long, strung out camera moves, but also just a lot of long takes with just static shots. We're just going to sit there and and let this person have the scene, even though they might be talking to someone. They really just let us hang out and focus on one person at a time, which is really interesting. You don't see a lot of this editing done in most films. It's usually cut around dialogue like this person's talking. We're going to kind of watch watch them. And they might like J cut or L cut, which just means like you might hear dialogue from someone start before you actually cut to the frame of them talking here. They really just let someone have their moments. Like if you think of Tom Cruise sitting down to do the interview, we start that section with this really long, slow push in as he's wigging out like he's having this really manic moment as he's just still, you know, vibing off of talking and presenting to all the boys in the crowd that are losing their minds over, you know, sex and trying to trap women into sex or whatever. And so we start this really long, slow push in, even though the the interviewer's there, she she's talking, she's trying to get his attention before we eventually cut to her. And it's not, but it's not until we like really get from a wide to like a medium close on, on Frank before we cut to the alternative point of view to see her as she's, and we, I love that we can still see him in the corner of the frame as he's just being weird. Like he's talking about being a dog and he's like wagging his tongue out and you can kind of see, catch all the stuff on the edge of the frame, but you're identifying with her because you're watching her deal with this. You can feel like, what would I do? Like, how do you like corral this wild man? And it's just beautiful editing, which I think really comes from the writing. And it's another thing like you're talking about. That's a director moment. Like the director has a, a thing that he's trying to get at. And so these long takes, these long static shots really let us focus on someone and stay connected regardless of who's talking. Like at the end, when Jimmy Gator is confessing to Rose, all his infidelities, like we hang out on Jimmy, even whenever she's talking, like he, they really just let us focus on what this person's going through. And as an actor, you have to stay in it the entire way through. And as, and as a director, you have to know whenever you have the take and you have to be able to give corrections because this means that you can't cut around performance. I've, I've had to do this, you know, a lot, even if it's me in the film, like I'm cutting around my own performance as you're trying to find the best take for this line or the best take for that line or the best moment in here. They have to give you one perfect, beautiful take. And so as a director, you might have to step in and say, hey, when she's talking, just sit there. Just listen. Don't react. You're just going to sit there and listen to what they have to say before and let that bottle up so that whenever you give your next line, there's something in there. There's going to you're going to have something extra to deliver because you're not reacting yet. You react whenever it's time for you to react. And so they do. He just does a really great job. And with this many characters and stories, it's probably best to reduce edits, 
which is going to help you ground the audience. I mean, for a three hour runtime, it also probably helps reduce viewer fatigue, you know, potentially by reducing the number of cuts. But the tricky thing is there's also so much movement that it still could be a challenging film in the beginning, especially because there's a lot of zooming and dollying in. There's just tons and tons of movement. And maybe I feel like all the movement in the front half of the movie is to help the movie feel like it's still setting setting in. It's still settling, which is maybe kind of an illusion, an illusion to help maybe the first half kind of speed by so that whenever it does kind of settle, it just feels like you're getting into the movie, even though you've been here for an hour and a half. Like it's been just constantly pushing and dolling and you're walking around through spaces and camera move from this person to this person seamlessly. And so I think all that movement is kind of helping it feel maybe like you're still getting into the story so that you don't feel like three hours has gone by by the time the credits roll. Kind of a slate of hand maybe from the director's seat. Good point. There's a really fun little slow-mo switch that they do. You don't see this a ton in movies. It's the scene where Donnie talks himself up in the car and then he walks into the bar and he sits down and then the waitress comes over to take his order. And it's this section where the waitress walks over and gets his order, right? And we kind of do this uh, Dutch angle where the camera tilts. From there, it seamlessly moves into slow motion without cutting and... I just find that kind of stuff interesting because that means that whole section was filmed in uh, 48 frames per second. And you got to be very conscious of when you're doing that with the lighting in, in the scene. Like there's some practicals on the wall and there's like this little video game console sitting next to the, the booth. If you're not really paying attention, you can get more flickering than you probably want before you're ready for it. And the scene can come across choppier because 48 frames crammed in into 24 frames can produce a very uh, choppy effect. And that's great for like action sequences and sports scenes, but maybe not as great for a drama whenever you're trying to emphasize the loneliness and uh, the disconnectedness of a character. So you have to be very conscious of how you're shooting this, how the characters are moving and how quickly the camera movement is before you cut to the slow-mo or before you want to initiate that slow-mo switch. Because after that, now you can move as fast as you want. And that kind of emphasizes the, the slow motion aspects. So that's just a really simple, like, I don't know, 60 second shot, 90 second shot that I, I just really enjoyed because uh, you don't really see that kind of stuff too often. The transitions, my God, throughout this entire movie, the way he's he's switching scenes. If I wanted to do an ensemble film, I would definitely, this would be one of a handful of films I studied a lot between something like Traffic, Crash, Magnolia. This, I think, kills those others, you know, in terms of transitions. The close-up of Donnie, whenever he's meeting with Solomon Solomon, uh, who's played by Alfred Molina, just this little brief cameo, but he he's wanting his keys back and Donnie like slams the keys on the table and we cut to a close-up of these marital rings being laid on another table. And that's the scene where the officer Jim had found the dead body in the closet. And now they're kind of tallying all the items that was in this person's possession. It's her wedding rings and what have you. And they're both kind of playing into kind of the similar idea of something has ended. Like we're, we're now moving on. Donnie no longer has his job. He's giving up his, his keys and 
this woman had you know killed her spouse and now that's over too so that's subtle but it's it's connecting these two scenes through a close-up of these metal objects that you know have some kind of representation of what those characters are dealing with and throughout the entire movie i mean they're just constantly especially that opening sequence that's just dollying in pushing in pushing in pushing in it's breathless like i after a while your eye starts to get a little tired but it's just so interesting. You also can't stop watching. <laughs> like that's hard to do. And it's clever because on at the same time, if you really were to go in and break down all those sequences, they're showing you how all these characters interconnect right there in the beginning. And that takes a lot of patience and writing and thought with your cinematographer, your DP to say, how can we make this absolutely sing? Cause you start to have to think about, okay, well, what is this location that we're shooting in and how can we start inserting these ideas through this location and how should we film this sequence? And so you, your location scouting starts to matter a lot and from that you know point of view and a thousand other things. The lighting, some of these scenes are really, really long and they're like walking through hallways and I can imagine they probably had to swap out all those lights, all those fluorescents are having to get swapped out. Uh, in order to match the color tone that you want and to make sure they're not flickering. So, hey, can we get Kinos in those uh, in those fluorescent sockets? Like just tons. It's just endless. But PTA is super patient with that kind of stuff. A lot of times in writing, you know, writers, writers will say, you know, start from the end and write your way into it, right? Yeah. That's kind of hard to do with this film. Yeah. Like, what's the end? Okay, frogs are raining from the sky. Uh, how do you get there? Well, you just do, you know, yeah. it's just kind of, that's, that's at least for this movie. Yeah. It's crazy. I love the, uh, the use of anamorphic here. It probably on the one hand helped shoot a lot of those long wonders because now you have a little bit more room to play in terms of your, your latitude left to right. And so if you don't quite nail the, the camera move, you still have a little room to play on the other hand. Shooting anamorphic makes pulling focus a nightmare. There's just a lot less room for, for error when it comes to pulling focus. And they did an incredible job. I think they also probably tried to shoot as wide open as they can. But it also means, again, the lighting takes on a, a much bigger job task. Like that's, that's it's a lot to do. But using the, the anamorphics I thought was fun because shooting anamorphic means that the, the screen is going to be a lot wider than most films. Um, due to the way the lens kind of compresses the image on the sides. And then once you're done filming, you kind of stretch it back out. And that's why you get these these longer, wider shots. But it also changes the way you're going to frame people. And I love it for this particular use because a movie about loneliness, the framing helps strand people by themselves so much more. Whenever you have this much more room to your left and to your right, if you put someone in the center, they look that much more by themselves. Even at times when they're framed with other people within the frame. So if you think of someone like the scene when Officer Jim goes into Claudia's apartment, they frame when they when he walks in, they frame her on like the far left and like he's on the far right. And it helps create this gulf, this chasm between the two of them, because even though they're both lonely and now in the same frame, they're still so painfully far away from each other. And that's just a really excellent use of anamorphics and a way to think about your framing composition and why do you choose the, the lens that you're going to choose? It's playing a very significant role in the, the emotion of the story. That's all about loneliness. And 
from a cinematography standpoint too. I love the use of the eye lights, specifically with Claudia. Like I, I'm pretty sure everyone has a really strong eye light, and that's just that little glint that's coming off of people's eyeballs. Like this is little highlighted shiny ob object uh, reflectance specular on people's eyes. But with Claudia, they gave her, especially at the the dinner scene with her and Jim, they gave her a double catch light. And so there's two. One is right beneath the other. There's one that's kind of sitting right in the middle of her eye. And there's one, another one that's, you know, just below it towards like not quite at the bottom of her eye, but just below in the middle. And it gives her a very sad look in her eye, like she's tearing up. And it's perfect because it really adds to her stress and her vulnerability. And Melora Walters is, just does an incredible job of feeling stressed out and coked out. Like she can't sit still. Even when she's sitting still, she can't really stay still. So you can feel her anxiety the entire time and what she's wrestling with that you don't really know until the very end, the last sequence. But it's just perfect use of using another eye light to, to give her another sense of she's on the verge of tears and she could break at any given moment. It's absolutely gorgeous. As far as writing, the writing for an ensemble, I mean, every single character is distinct and fully realized. Frank, for instance, so manic. This dude is just wild. He can't contain himself. Even his entourage act like he does as you would expect, you know, from this kind of cultish figure, like whenever uh, the, the phone call is coming through, right? What's his name? Phil Parma, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, the, the hospice nurse. Oh my gosh, yeah. He's calling, he's trying to get to, through to Frank and he finally gets through to, to this woman, Janet, who works, you know, beneath Frank and she has to call and get one of his lackeys on the phone and this guy is just giving her shit and he walks over to Frank and he's like, effing Janet has some effing problem. Like he's just kind of down on Janet. Janet's just over here doing her job. She's like, just doing her job. The way they yeah. treat women like is very emblematic of, you know, Frank himself and the lifestyle that he leads and the way he thinks about the world. And it's just, it's perfect. Every one of these characters have a fully realized aspect to them that's realized by the people around them. You know, Stanley, right, has got this crappy dad who's just, railing on them all the time and yet you know tries to give these very crappy uh love you like at the end of it he just he's being a jerk right why do you need four bags you don't need four bags love you <laughs> like, he's just the worst and it's perfect like you think of yeah you know child actors child stars and the pressure that comes from parents it sits perfectly uh jimmy gator right his his world is run by TV and the way the the, the stagehand is, is dealing with Stanley, he's needing to go to the bathroom. She's like, you can't do that. <laughs> like causes him to wet himself is just mm -hmm. absolutely crushing. It's interesting you talked about the dad because there were a couple of moments I noticed about the dad because I mean, being a parent, I know there's plenty of times where you just where, you know, you get mad and sometimes it's it's warranted to a certain point and then other times, you know, it's you're just a jerk and it happens but so yeah the point where his dad realized that he he wet himself that was a point where the dad could have could have said oh my gosh like okay let's go let's go to the bathroom whatever or like get gotten mad at the stage for telling him he couldn't go he didn't that prove because he was a jerk before that 
but now we know, oh no, he is a, he is a really bad dad. Okay. Now we know who this guy is. That was a really good way to establish because it could have been effective without the dad going down to, to talk to him, mm. to Stanley could have been effective with just the, the, the lady saying, you can't go right now. And that would have been enough, but they want to solidify, no, this guy's a shithead. Okay. Have him realize that Stanley wet himself and say, get your stuff together. Okay. So we know he's a jerk. But then, so at the very end where Stanley goes into the bedroom and says, you, you need to be nicer to me. And he says, go to sleep. And it's very dismissive the first time. And then he says, you need to be nicer to me. And the way that his dad responds, like, I want to put it on that actor. Like it was really, it was perfect because it was very, you know, he, he told him to go back to bed, but he did it in a way where we know as viewers, he's realizing right? That he's been a crappy dad and that he needs to change in that moment. But he does, he's still, he's afraid to admit it. Right. All by saying the same line that he said two seconds earlier to the same person, just the way that he said it was, was perfect. It was, it was perfect. And that, you know, it's so funny. We talk about actors all the time, man, but it all comes down to the director. It really does because he could have done that 20 other ways and it probably would have been good, but PTA just knew what he needed to get and he got it from him. And it was, yeah, that felt like a direction moment too. Obviously the actor needs to deliver, but yeah. Anyway, that was just a really, really good moment with the dad. And you made a really great point though. Like, because up until that scene where he wet himself and the dad goes over, like, I remember watching it and you know he's launching this kid's bags out of the car and i'm like you're such a dick but then he's he throws in like hey i love you and i'm like okay you know what maybe he's okay maybe he's not so bad and it is crucial it is crucial to have that moment where he has the opportunity to be the hero and to completely walk away from that moment uh, yeah that's that's a really great point um because that solidifies okay you know this guy is just the worst yeah and so yeah the it's for for writing in an ensemble, it seems important too. Usually, that characters overlap or relate to others throughout the film. Like there's a ton of those little moments where the ambulance speeds by, you know, carrying Linda Partridge, who's OD'd or whatever she's taking the drugs that she wasn't supposed to mix, and now she's being carted away. And we we pass the camera movement passes from following the ambulance to dollying over. And now we're with Donnie Smith and he's having his realization, like, what are you doing? And so it, having these overlapping moments or characters relating to each other is, is super important. I mentioned earlier, like the connection between Donnie Smith and Stanley, but also there's these really great moments like Claudia and towards the end is finding love, right? There's that hilarious and adorable scene between her and Jim where they kiss and he's, she's like, do you want to kiss me? You, uh, I, yes, I do. <laughs> and then we just quick zoom into their yes, kiss. Yes, I do. <laughs> Camera goes right it's into so, it. Yeah. It's just a really fast dolly in. It's so hilarious and adorable. And we cut from that to her father is losing his love by admitting guilt to not just the infidelities, but he's indicating that he molested Claudia. And then we cut from that to, Claudia getting up from the table and trying to walk away from love herself and, you know, just 
the abuse catching up and um, she'd never really settled in her heart, you know, her self-worth because she's surprised that, you know, Jim could want to go out on her date with her and could, could possibly like her. And it's all to her surprise. And it goes to the self-esteem that she lost through the way her father abused her. And I love, we get to the scene where her mom comes in and is holding her. We cut to that painting that's on the, uh, hanging on her wall. And in the very small right-hand corner of it, it says it, but it really did happen. And it's just confirming that, yeah, she was hurt. And I also love that at the very end, it's, it's the last scene. It's when Jim makes his way back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Break the fourth wall. Yeah. She, yeah, that's right. She looks at the camera and it's like, yeah, you know what? Fight. Yeah, it's so there are a lot of different. Well, I guess we do we want to talk about the frogs or are you going to get to that? One more second. You know, what? because I don't really have a big thing about the frogs um, there. It, it's fun. But there is one other thing writing wise that I found interesting, which is they he, he references movies. Normally, if you're if you're watching a movie as a screenwriter, you'd never say the word movie because watching a movie and then hearing the characters talk about a movie, it breaks the suspension of disbelief. That's not something you really want to have happen. Similar. If you're watching a TV show, they never talk about TV shows. Like normally it's the inverse. If you're watching a movie, they talk about, well, in TV shows. Oh, good point. And in TV shows, they say, well, in the movies, like those things never want to talk about themselves for that very simple reason of you don't want to break the suspension of disbelief. But this movie makes a point to break your suspension of disbelief in order to generate buy-in, which is a weird, wonky, crazy idea that I would not advise anyone to ever do because it's just, it's a gamble. But in this case, the reason he's doing that is because some of the things that happen in this are so outlandish that he wants to make sure you believe that this can happen, that this is a real thing to give you buy-in to the idea that, you know, frogs could very well fall from the sky. And that's the whole reason for that five, six minute intro where we're seeing all these coincidences happen, right? Who is it? The Stanberry Hill or whatever, the guy that gets murdered by three characters that have oh, yeah. the names, uh, Joseph Green, Stanley Berry and Daniel Hill. <laughs> it's, he's trying to build these ideas. The scuba diver was in a tree. It's crazy, but it's not a coincidence. And that's the whole point of that opening, you know, segment. This is not something that just happens. This narrator does not want to believe that these are coincidences. These strange things happen all of the time. And he's trying to get you to believe in a world where coincidences happen, but that maybe they mean more than what uh, a coincidence would leave you, lead you to believe. And so, yeah, fog, frogs fell from the sky. What did you take from that? What was your lesson or how did you see the this interaction with the characters themselves? What was the significance to you of the frogs? So to me, there is an obvious... And a lot of movies, I try to dismiss a religious tone mm-hmm. just because I just assume that that's not me- meant. But in this case, I feel like it's there. I feel like the choice of it being frogs is very direct, a very direct Christian reference, right? And that everything that happens at the end happens the way it's supposed to happen. It just... so. This is, it's something that just happens, but this is not something that 
happens that not just something that happens. So it's hard to explain. So the way so let's take a couple examples and I am terrible with the names. So forgive me. Well, there's only 700 of them in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's start with, let's start with the father. What's his Stanley's um, dad? Stanley Spectre. He's in a coma because he just had the the stuff dropped on it, the morphine. Oh, the uh, morphine. Earl Partridge. The Earl Partridge. The thank man. you. Gotcha. Gosh, gotcha. I'm so yeah, I'm so bad with names. The sound of a frog hitting or frogs hitting the roof wakes him up. To, so he has just gone in this long, huge tirade earlier about how he's just he's admitted to all this terrible stuff that he's done. And he's, he's, he's asked asked for forgiveness, but he's, he knows that he's shit and you know, whatever. So frog wakes him up from his coma essentially to see his son there basically forgiving him. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That's one scenario. Jimmy is trying to kill himself. Is it Jimmy? No, uh, no, that's Jimmy Gator. You're right. It's Jimmy Jimmy Gator. He's trying to kill himself and a, and a frog prevents him from killing himself. He doesn't get the easy way out. He's got to live, right? Let's go to whiz kid, Donnie Smith. He's trying to break in to, to bring back all that stuff, right? A frog. And he's, he's been vain this whole time, spending money on stuff. He doesn't need like dent oral surgery. <laughs> frog hits him in the face. He falls down, busts his teeth open. So now he doesn't have the money. Or now he he ha, now he needs it, but he doesn't have the money because Officer Jim, yeah. Officer Jim makes him bring the money back. He's a good guy and has had really shitty luck on, in his life, so he doesn't get arrested. You know, so Jim wants to be this kind of like he doesn't want to be the guy who exacts the 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 law. He wants to be the guy who who like helps people, right? And he helps Whiz Kid Donnie Smith. He helps him by saving him from the frogs falling on him and helping him take back all this, being there to make him take back all the stuff, do what's right. But now he doesn't have the money to fix his oral, his, his mouth. Right. So now he has busted up teeth, doesn't have the money. So he, he is punished, but not in, Oh, not overly punished. Right. What else was there? There was, okay. Julianne Moore, she's in the, the ambulance, right. She's being saved. Right. And then we don't know what happens. To, I guess she's okay at the end. Right. She's in the hospital. Mm. But, but that whole scene of the, the ambulance crashing because of the frogs, like she deserved that. Right. She's been pretty terrible that whole time. And, oh, and at, at the end, uh, Claudia and Rose meet together at the end to, to hold each other together at the end in the, in their, in Claudia's apartment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, while the frogs are, are falling, they're holding each other, comforting each other. Like, I just feel like everything that was supposed to happen, the way that like a good ending and that a just God would exact it happens because of the frogs. And it could have been anything, right? Could have been anything. Yeah. But choosing frogs is so biblical yeah. and calling out the, you know, the Exodus quote bible quote that at that one point in the street on those signs is so on the nose that it's kind of hard to say otherwise should anybody watching that having known about 
what that passage is expected frogs to fall from the sky. No, but so much, you know, and what is it? It's, it's anything. It's just something that happens, right? It's not something that happens that that's not something that really happens, but it's something that happens. And I think there's a dichotomy there, right? There's this, there's this, you know, belief that something can't happen unless God intervenes, but there's also this belief that things just happen, right? And you could either look at this and look at all of these stories converging and being their own separate story. And if you're looking at it from, from an inside point of view, like in one story, you're thinking, oh no, none of these things could happen, but this is happening. This just happens. And then if you take a step out, like we are as a viewer, we look at it and we say, and we say, wow, this, this is not something that just happens, but it's something that happens. It's happening right now. And, and that's what the, uh, the young kid yeah, Stanley. says at the end, yeah. this is something that happens or something, yeah. something like that. So yeah, I think it's biblical. I think it's, uh, it's, it's religious. I don't know if he is religious or not. I don't think it matters, but I think it's very rewarding. Obviously it's something that you remember, right? It's a way to take, it's a way to end a three hour movie where you walking out like, what the hell was that? But it's also a way to, to go back and rewatch mm. and think, oh, okay, you know, I, I get it. Or I understand a little bit more, or I see that, or I see that, that I didn't notice before. And, and leading up to what we know inevitably will just happen, which is the frog. Long way around, but that's kind of what I think. Nice. It's great. No, I think you nailed it. I have absolutely nothing to. Uh, <laughs> I mean, add. yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I I bet that we have some viewers who have like really good insight into all of that, yeah. uh, much more than than what we have. But it's just it's a beautiful it's a beautiful way to try to explain the unexplainable. Yeah. And I don't know what I think, to be honest. I don't know if if things just happen. And it's, or if it's the universe or if God intervenes, or I don't know any of that stuff. I don't pretend to know. I mean, you know, could, could frogs rain from the sky? Sure. Is there a bigger meaning behind that? If that happens, maybe not to me at the time, maybe if this really did happen, it didn't mean anything to you and me. Yeah. It was just like, this weird, weird thing. But to these seven characters or seven different storylines, it absolutely did. It's interesting. It's not like they all converge together. Yeah. It's that this this overarching thing happens to the entirety of of where are they? They're in San, San Fernando, Fernando yeah. Valley. On the Valley, eight one eight Beachwood <laughs> Avenue. This this whole thing happens to the Valley, and but we're watching it affect all of them separately. It's it's that's interesting. It's crazy. It's crazy. So. With the music, I mean, I love the music. I love the use of the music in this. On the one hand, it keeps a lot of the momentum and connectivity between the scenes and characters kind of flowing. But it also creates these interesting moments where like if you strip out the music, it allows a much stronger moment. Like in the interview with Frank and she starts bringing up his history and that lack of music, that silence suddenly has a bunch of added weight, right? As she's like, what are you doing? I am silently judging you. <laughs> I love like, how tight they are on him. 
Yeah. Oh. Quietly judging you. It's just yeah. bang. And then they also have this really strange and beautiful moment that's one of those moments where I'm like, I wish I wrote that. Where all the characters start singing the song together. And they're talking oh about gosh. how... Amy Mann. Who is it? Amy Mann? Amy Mann. God. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And what, what was the song about? It's like, yeah, you have to you have to wake up. What's the... Oh, it's something give up or something. Something about giving up. Where you're... Save me. Yeah. Save me lyrics. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, and a lot of it is, you, you know, wise up. She's saying that you have to wise up. Mm-hmm. And, and then give up at the end or something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting just from the standpoint of going back to, I guess, the, the frogs, because this is about people's people needing to move forward and to start rethinking the way they're they're living their life and the way they're viewing the world. You do need to, you know, wise up, so to speak. And it's this very surreal, odd and beautiful moment that really does, I think, speak to, you know, the heart of the film. And we will get to the whole Exodus thing here in a few minutes. But with kind of that in mind, like a couple quick facts about Magnolias. <laughs> you know, John Bryan did the the score, by the way. I did not. Yeah. I'm not sure That's I know who man. John Bryan is. He's done. Uh, he's been around for 40 years, 50 years. almost. like guys old hat. He he actually beautiful machine. I think it was that that album by. Fiona Apple um, or whatever. He did the first version of that. Look for anybody listening. There is another version of that album. What is it? It's like beautiful machine or something by Fiona Apple. Not the version she released. She did the entire album with John Bryan. And then she re did the whole album with another producer. But the John Bryan version is way better. Anyway, John (laughs) Bryan is amazing. That's wild. Continue. So, For one thing, magnolias, little, little, little factoids. <laughs> There's, it's they're they're over twenty million years old, and so they kind of symbolize longevity and perseverance, oh. and you know that's kind of interesting because I was just trying to figure out why do they name this movie Magnolia? Yeah, over twenty million years old kind of symbolizes longevity and perseverance, and with, and so I feel like you know the the thread that's kind of running through Magnolia is you know this connectivity and your past catching up with you and along with that this is interesting this is i don't know it really ties to anything apparently magnolias appeared before bees did chronologically in history and so magnolias are theorized to have evolved to encourage pollination by beetles i guess and so it plays a pretty important part of you know our evolutionary history in theory obviously we can't fully know something like that but yeah so magnolias important and interesting uh, old <laughs> little factoid little factoid yeah i mean that's pretty much all i got i think this is just a wonderful movie okay. so you watched it you watched it twice yeah. the, the rewatchability is pretty high Super even it being high. three hours long right yeah there's all these just little moments that you'll forget you'll get to the end of the movie and you'll you know forget these little close-ups like even at the end, whenever the 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 hospice nurse uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, whose name is Phil Parma, Phil Parma, yeah, yeah, which is interesting, just because it feels like a little bit of an anagram, almost saying that like he he provides pills and you know he's a pharmacolo- 
pharmacologist or something. Pharmacologist. Yeah. And so yeah. there's like this little light wordplay that I think is probably going on there. But Phil never says what he's about to do. And whenever Linda leaves the scene, she's kind of kind of saying her goodbyes and saying, I'm going to walk away now. And, you know, there's tears that are coming into Phil's eyes because he knows what he's about to do, too. And all we really see happen is him pick up the vial. Like he picks up the vial of the morphine and that's kind of that. But it's a very quick insert. Like if you blink, you miss it to really make sure that, you know, he's about to set the, uh, the, the end game in motion here. And yeah, there's other, these other little tiny close-ups that happen all throughout the, the, the show that I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. The little boy did get the fun, uh, the, the handgun and yeah, his, his thread running throughout the film. Yeah. So super rewatchable. There's just all of these little details all the time. Every, every scene is filled with it. Yeah. I, I, I loved it too. It's, it's so funny because it goes against a lot of what we say makes not what we say makes a good film, but what we like about other films or dislike about films, Uh right? It goes against it, but it does it so well. Acting is beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful and it's pointed. It's very purposeful. There's reasons for all of it. There's reasons why there's a super close up or why there's a zoom or why, you know, there's a pan or why it's static or whatever. There's all these reasons and, or why there's space between them. Like you mentioned between Claudia and Jim in the apartment. It was just brilliant by the way. I, I just was like, it popped in my head. I was like, yeah, that beautiful. Cause, and the camera is like low. Yeah. So they're tall yeah. in the frame and they're on opposite ends. It's just really, really well done with that, with that photograph or that painting in between them. The painting that has the little blurb on it that says this, this, it really happened yeah. that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. is between them is very metaphoric and yeah. So anyway, all, all that, the stuff is just so it's full of all this stuff. It makes me want to go watch it again. Yeah. Um, so Paul Thomas Anderson is one, definitely one of my favorite directors in my top five, for sure. He always has been, I just love like everything he does pretty much. I mean, even if it's a movie where I'm not crazy about it, I can find beautiful things to love about it. There will be blood. I mean, that's very hard to watch multiple times. However, I could, yeah, and I, I would, and I would learn something every single time. Partly because Daniel Day Lewis yeah. is absolute monster, but but yeah, so yeah, it's just fan, phenomenal. Yeah, really, I think really good. I think okay. his only film that I just did not like, even though it was still, but it goes right to your point. Like, there's still a lot that's likable. Is Inherent Vice? It's just such a unfollowable movie that it's mm, it's really yeah. hard to watch. Yeah, but I get it. I even get you. within that, every single scene is fantastic. <laughs> It's still yeah. like really good. It's weird. Yeah. It's such a, I agree. That guy is just amazing. Nice. Thanks. Uh, one, I guess one last shout out. Thanks. Uh, Izzy for this request. I oh, hope yes. we did it justice. Excited to hear more of your thoughts on this one. Definitely. So thanks man. What are you going to recommend this week, man? Another PTA film that has one of my favorite actors of all time in it. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix, the master and obviously has the, our resident, whatever, what's his name? Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm so bad with names. I forget them every single time in it. And it's just another acting clinic. It's, it's not the most rewatchable film. It's, you know, very, you know, pointed at one specific, you know, focus, but if you can get past that and just, and just watch it for a piece of art, it's, it's really, really beautiful film. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, being gone, this is one of his best performances, I think, 
I mean, there's so many, there's so many others, but in this particular case, I just, I love him in this film. So, and I think that was like 2000, like, what is it? 2014? Oh, 2012, 2012. 2012. Okay. And the color, I, I love the color in the master. Like he has oh, all these muted gosh. tones. God, it's just yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. And he shot it in mm-hmm. 65 millimeter, which I got yeah. to see it projected at the Alamo. Ooh. God, it's just beautiful. Gorgeous. I'm going to recommend watching this. I was just like, this is a performer's movie. And so if you want to see another incredible performance, there's, there's a Netflix movie called Pieces of a Woman. And it has Shia LaBeouf oh, yeah. and Vanessa Kirby. And Vanessa Kirby was starred alongside Tom Cruise in one of his Mission Impossible films. But she puts on in Pieces of a Woman one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. Like it's she goes wow. through like pregnancy, giving birth, child labor, and it's just mesmerizing. Like she is she is incredible. Yeah. And so if you want to watch something that's very moving, but just a great performance. It's great. Shia's fine. He he does what he does, but she watch it for her, like because she is okay. astronomically good. I will. Nice. Stay tuned for next week. Next week is Valentine's Day, and so we're gonna we're gonna check out a little little chick flick, one of my favorites, a little something called Notting Hill with uh, Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts. I'm excited about this. I've seen this movie a thousand times. So if you want, just kind okay. of a little little kitschy, you know. Uh, do your thing so okay stay tuned for that next week don't forget subscribe review leave us a note shout out again to izzy for for doing this one if you want to leave a note on this episode you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash magnolia and our quote of the day is exodus 8 2 if you refuse to let them go i will send a plague of frogs on your whole country i yeah. yeah i find that really interesting because if i'm trying to just think in relationship to this movie and I'm I'm wanting it, and this might be me just stretching it, but I'm wanting it to mean more than just an excuse to insert frogs into you know the end of the movie. And so I'm thinking like, okay, in this point in in you know Jewish history, they're enslaved to the Egyptians, and God right now is sending Moses to tell the Pharaoh like, hey, let let those people go. Or I'm going to send a plague of frogs on 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 your country, and so it's kind of becoming this symbol of the idea that you know w- these people in this story were holding each other captive, and some some of these characters were were holding like the 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 father. There's two fathers in this in this case. There's the one that's on his deathbed that's dying, and he had been holding his son captive right his son was holding himself captive with his inability to to forgive his dad and it was clearly destroying his life like he was going down this really bad road of hatred and uh, misogyny and just othering women like half the people on the planet were targets to him and that's really an unhealthy place for him to be and it was stemming from his relationship with his father and his, he needed to forgive his father and was, you know, unable to do so and insert frogs like here's a plague. And similar, like Jimmy Gator was holding his daughter captive by just not owning his 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 garbage, not owning what he did to her. And he had kind of 
enslaved, you know, his wife and his daughter in the process. How can they heal if he won't, you know, admit to what he's done? And so it felt like a lot of people were being held captive by their past and by things that they wanted and wouldn't give themselves. And so they, you know, God, so to speak, sent a plague in order to encourage them to to let themselves go and to to let, you know, freedom, you know, reign, so to speak. I don't know. That's my very terrible attempt at, you know, rationalizing the insertion of Exodus um, and the frogs into the into the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, the the reference to the frogs in the Bible wasn't raining frogs. Right. They came it out was of the just sea. a plague of yeah. frogs. Yeah. And in this case, it raining frogs was just like something that happened. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. It has rained frogs before. Well, I don't know if it's literally rained them so much as they got well, swept up in a storm. Yes. And yeah. And in that sense, like I don't know how I don't know what else that means than <laughs> raining frogs. That sounds like raining frogs to me. Well, I don't think like tadpoles were caught up in evaporation and condensation. No, um, no, that's to precipitate. not like no. that would technically neither be were these rain. frogs. Like it's never yeah, rained the, sand. There's been sandstorms. <laughs> Yeah, I think the the point I think it's perfect. Yeah. Because the the point is whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in the in, in the intervention of God in your life or in other people's lives at all. It doesn't matter because this just happened. If that's the case, right? If that's the case where you don't believe in God and I'm not a religious person, but you don't believe in God, then this is just a thing that happened. Right. And so the frog stopping, what's his name from killing himself, you know, like all of those things just happen because of this thing. But if you do believe in God, right, then it was an intervention, a, a miraculous intervention that doesn't happen every day to intervene in these people's lives. Now, for you and me, who are not part of any of these, these stories, mm -hmm. then that's just something that happened. Right. But for these people, maybe that's it's a little bit more. And so I think he's it's it's a play on whatever you might actually believe. It's like it's like prodding on that. Do you really believe that? Because look at this. Like we don't believe in God, right? Okay, you don't believe in God. Look at this. Look at look at what happened here. That's kind of weird. That doesn't just happen, but it just happened to us. Or if you do believe in God, well, yeah, but raining frogs. I mean, really. That doesn't, you know? Yeah, so maybe so, it's a bit of a plea to get us to all connect with each other and to see the connections with each other. Yes, hmm. yes, yes. And even even in the end, where when Claudia, when Jim comes to her bedside, I mean, that's it's such a perfect moment with that they don't cut away. They stay on her. They don't show Jim. They don't show anything. It's just her. Oh man, it's so, it's, it's emotional. It's just her deserving love and getting it she gets it and she gives it to us like she then passes it to us by giving us a moment of a look at the end and we, and she could have not it could have been that could have not happened yeah. she could have not looked at us and it would have been a beautiful ending but to look at us and and or somebody she looked at somebody it might not have been me and it might not have been you mm -hmm. but somebody watching this movie she looked right at that person that needed that at that moment, right? And that she was passing that love because what was Jim say, or not Jim, but Wizkid Donnie Smith, I have so much love to give. How do I give it? 
How many people feel that mm. all the time? So much love to give. How I and no one to give it to. Now she's getting it and she's immediately giving it away. It's just it's so beautiful and perfect. And I, I mean, maybe that's the that's the other aspect. It's like that's the aspect of it that I like to think about of God not being up there, mm. but in all of us and in the way that we interact with each other and the way that we proliferate love, you know, across space and time and screens and that being a perfect ending to a film that's trying to do just that, right? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this had to be the, this had to be the quote yeah, of the day. Yeah, there's no doubt. <laughs> it just had to be. It's <laughs> good. I mean, Anything else to add? Yeah, well, I just think it's funny. This really doesn't add much, but last week I read The Alchemist yeah. for the second time. It's been a while. Great book. And I just think it's funny, like, and this past week, I've, because uh, Melchizedek shows up in at the very beginning of uh, The Alchemist, and Melchizedek is a biblical figure, king from, I want to say he, he met Abraham and gave him, like, first tithe was given to Melchizedek. But whatever. So it was just like, oh, man, there's, there's been an awful lot of, like, Genesis and Exodus and Old Testament in my life this week. <laughs> waiting on the first. They're the worst, by the way. What's they're, the, they're the worst. They are the worst. They're yes, the worst. Yeah. You go read them, they're, they're the absolute Genesis worst. Genesis is fun. Exodus, my God. It's the only thing worse is like Leviticus. That, that book is beast. Good God. Yeah. We should do an episode on the Bible. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll need to read it a few times. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably read it more than me. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely read it cover to cover. Yeah, I went to Catholic school. I think you probably read it more than me. Oh, well, this is fun, man. Same. Yeah. Thank you so much, Izzy, for the, the suggestion here. That I, Great, great film. Yeah. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, so make sure you join us next week. We'll be doing Notting Hill, so make sure to watch that before jumping in here. And review, subscribe, all that good stuff. Share us with your friends. It all helps. Make a suggestion. If you suggest something, we'll probably do it. And, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as well. Until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies.